Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the 400th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of British History at Ohio State University, who's going to talk with us about more than mothers, juries of matrons and thieves of the belly in medieval England. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Tuckler. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Zappel. Our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. And by the way, I just want to you know, give kudos to Rick, who is the consummate professional and just kept rolling right along as David was playing crowd music in the background. <laughs> Oblivious. I'm just oblivious. You David. are so good. Yeah, I, I only only wish that I could be that focused. <laughs> At any rate, this is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're talking about more than mothers, juries of matrons, and pleas of the belly in medieval England with Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of English History at Ohio State University. Welcome back for another Century Show, Sarah. I believe this is three or four. I can't remember. I, I think it's probably number four at this point. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. So uh, that we're just excited to have you here. Um, so let's. You know, I'm always excited to be here. That's fabulous. We love to have you. Um, so let's start out with um, maybe a basic explanation of why you chose to to research pleas of the belly in the first place. Well, I will say. Um, there are a couple things. Uh, I got excited about pleas of the belly, but also excited about juries of matrons who were the ones responsible for examining pleas of the belly. And it was the juries of matrons in particular that attracted me to this. It's one of the few ways that women could actually participate in criminal justice in the medieval period. And um, I've always been surprised that the historians who looked at women in this role um, sort of assumed that they didn't really take their jobs very seriously. Matrons are really interesting. They look at, um, so please the belly are, when a convicted felon um, insists that she cannot be executed because she is pregnant. So you need a jury of matrons to come in and examine her and make sure that she is telling the truth and she actually is pregnant so that they should then delay the execution until the baby is born. So they're executing just one, not two people. Um, that's a pretty big job. And it is one that is really meaningful. Um, and it is the only way that women get to participate in the system. So I really wanted to know more about matrons, um, what qualified them to be matrons, and whether or not the historians who'd been looking at them and assuming that because they were women, they were just being emotional and, you know, essentially rubber stamping every plea of the belly that came forward. I wanted to see if any of that was legit. Sarah, what, uh, what does it take to qualify uh, in this, this uh, period to be a matron? So this is 
the difficult question that I was trying to answer in that paper. And just to give you a sense of, first of all, there are several competing theories out there. Um, a lot of historians had insisted that really all you needed was to be a mother. Because if you'd given birth, you know what the signs of pregnancy are. Now, I was always skeptical about that because I'm going to be blunt. I've been pregnant three times. I have three kids. And um, they were three very different pregnancies. Did I know I was pregnant each time? Um, well, not really. Um, it seems to me that it's a little bit more difficult to figure out that a person is pregnant than just having gone through this yourself. So there's that theory. Um, there's the theory that being a juror is a position that is just very elite. So anyone who is in this position was probably the wife of, you know, some sort of urban elite. Um, and this was a way of sort of, you know, proclaiming her eliteness to the community by being in this important role. And then there were others who said that, you know, on the continent, you always use midwives. So maybe that. So I, when I started looking into it, I was really wondering which it might be. And, and I am leaning towards either midwives or um, birth attendants or something along that line, i.e. somebody who didn't necessarily have formal medical training, like no university training or guild training or anything like that, but definitely some sort of unofficial training. Um, yeah, it, it really does seem like it was a difficult enough job that you needed some degree of medical expertise in order to do this. Okay, so Sarah, I'm just thinking biologically about the timing. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can be pregnant for a fair bit before you start having physiological signs, um, you know, at mm -hmm. least for a few weeks and and maybe for much longer depending on how all of thing that mm -hmm. worked out so what kind of processes did a matron go through mm -hmm. in order to determine whether someone was uh in fact pregnant particularly at the early stages of the pregnancy mm. okay so um this is one of the key elements to sort of do undertaking this study um a lot of the historians have said that they only cared about women who were pregnant after the quickening. Now, the quickening is a very specific moment in time uh, in a woman's pregnancy. After the baby is fully formed and God has inserted a soul that is experienced by the woman, uh, by the woman who is pregnant as the quickening, which is the first fetal movement, so she knows the baby now has a soul. And that usually happens at the end of the first trimester. Um, and, you know, again... Figuring out that a woman is pregnant at the end of the first trimester, um, you know, you can see this from feeling the fundus, um, you know, how, how much pressure there is exerted on the belly by the expanding womb. Uh, you can tell this in the enlargement of the breasts and so forth. But one of the points I was trying to make in my paper is actually, um, at least until the mid-14th century, they weren't just focused on the quickening. They were focused on conception. And they had a whole bunch of different ways to come up with to try and figure out whether or not a woman had actually conceived, which is clearly a lot more difficult than figuring out, you know, if a person is at the end of their first trimester. Um, there's lots of urine tests. If you take a urine sample from a woman and you look for moats or murkiness, there are ways to figure out whether or not you're pregnant with a girl or with a boy or had conceived at all or how far along you were. Um, there's lots of looking at the size and coloring of a woman's breasts. 
um, talking to a woman about um, missed periods, although a missed period is a little bit difficult to tell. This is a period where, or this is an era where a lot of women would have been suffering anemia Mm -hmm. and likely to have been quite irregular with their menstruation. But diet is another really key element in there. Um, Again, because most women were anemic, soil eating was actually something that was quite common. Um, And any woman who craved soil um, was probably pregnant. And that appears in a lot of the, the medical treatises of the period. So there are a lot of sort of you know, we might call them kind of folksy ways of figuring it out that a person had conceived um, today. But a lot of that stuff was legitimate um, medical advice given by the treatises of the era. So it seems quite likely this is exactly the kind of things that midwives were using to figure out if a woman had conceived. Sarah, is there any example that you found where a, uh, a woman... Uh, charged with a felony, uh, it found out that she had, in fact, lied? Oh, there were numerous cases of that. Um, and that's the thing, actually. Um, I will say, the the assumption has always been that these matrons just sort of let everyone go, that they just said, oh, they're all pregnant. And because of this, they the historians have referred to it as benefit of the belly, making a comparison with benefit of clergy, which is a male thing, i.e. if a man can read, he can pretend to be a member of the clergy, and then he goes and is tried by a church court where he won't get executed. So people have said this is the female equivalent. But, you know, when I was looking at the the actual cases, about 12% of the time, the matrons rejected the plea. Um, so, and I also have to say, there are a lot of women who went forward for, um, you know, were indicted and convicted and never pled the belly, which I'm sorry, if women were just, these matrons were just rubber stamping it, wouldn't every single woman have said, by the way, I'm pregnant? But they didn't. Sure. It was fairly uncommon sure. and it was getting rejected. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay stay tuned for our next segment of our show. This is ROI, KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement. Catch up on news about KALA. And listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussions of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of English History, at Ohio State University, and we are talking about more than mothers, juries of matrons and pleas of the belly in medieval England. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. 
Brett, as one of our medieval history experts, you get the first question. Excellent. Sarah, can you talk to us about how quickly after a birth um, any sort of penalty would be enforced? So this seems like it just kind of delays the inevitable. It does. And that's the thing. Um, it, it is important to recognize most of these women did eventually end up getting executed. Unfortunately, I can't tell you how quickly it happened. Um, and the reason I can't is because uh, the records are just not accurate enough for that most of the time. Um, however, I can tell you that I think they didn't pay enough attention to this because I've come across a number of good cases where um, women made a case to give birth outside of the prison because the prison was too uncomfortable. So they got moved to the sheriff's home or the jailer's home. They gave birth there. And then when no one was looking, got up and escaped. Uh, and in fact, I came across one great case of a woman who was put in prison with her husband while she was pregnant. They moved to the jailer's home, and she abandoned both newborn and husband at the jailer's <laughs> home and took off. <laughs> hey, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Yeah. Well, and there's also a couple of good cases of women who clearly stuck around long enough to give birth and then get pregnant again and try to keep up a whole cycle um, of, of giving birth to try and stay out or to stay away from the gallows. And in fact, uh, 14th, the 14th century is when they finally said, forget it, you can only claim to be pregnant once. After that, you can say you're pregnant, you can be pregnant, we're still executing you. Which I think is interesting, because it makes you wonder just how much they really cared about the life of this child then. Right, exactly. <laughs> Terry. Yeah, Sarah, before the plea of the belly and the juries of matrons came into being, had there been previous executions of pregnant women? Um, so there have been some instances of women who claim to be pregnant um, who were executed, but it is pretty rare. I mean, I think there has pretty much always been a taboo about pregnant women and being careful with them. And I'm just thinking, if you go back to even like the, the early barbarian peoples and look at their law codes, um, anyone who struck a pregnant woman would get in an awful lot of trouble and essentially had to pay like a full wear guild um, to replace the life of that pregnant child. So it, it seems to me that they, they've tried very hard to avoid doing that. So, Sarah, you brought up an interesting point about the child. So mm -hmm. did your research show anything about what happened with a child uh, born of a felon uh, after the mother is executed, um, you know what happened to this to this kid. So I could not find a darn thing. The closest thing that I could come up with is there are several sermon stories um, talking about children born to pregnant convicts in prison who were then raised in prison. And of course, the whole point of the sermon story is always to give you a sense of they were raised away from society, so they had no idea what society was like, which left me wondering if that ever happened. Unfortunately, I can't find out anything about that. That's always the problem with the Middle Ages. The records are pretty sparse. Sure. Sarah, I was wondering, you mentioned... Uh 
in the first segment that 12 percent of of uh, the pleas of the belly were rejected. And I don't want to get too macabre about this, but when a person dies, everything relaxes. Did they find that uh, some of the people that uh, were not uh, uh, the matrons did not agree with and then were executed were, in fact, pregnant after they were, uh, I would assume, hung? Um, so they in, in the English situation, which I was looking at, uh, they don't do autopsies in this period. Um, okay. However, they do them in Italy at this time, and they often ended up doing an autopsy afterwards just to check on the midwives. And the midwives were pretty much always right. Interesting. Good. Good. Yeah. Brett. Yeah. So you talked about um, how this would be the case for felons. What are some of the crimes that would expose a woman to the death penalty? Mm. So homicide um, and theft are often two of the big ones. Um, Receiving is a really big one for women, though. That is someone else commits a crime and comes into her home and she takes them in. Um, So that's that's another really big one. And, I mean, treason is certainly um, a possibility. Um, we don't have a lot of women traders except for in the instance of counterfeiting money. Um, women do seem to have played a role in that. That's interesting. All right, Terry. Yes, you had mentioned that perhaps the qualifications of the juries of matrons might have been as midwives. Uh, What qualified a woman to be a midwife in the Middle Ages? So this is one of those things that unfortunately is kind of lost in oral tradition. And actually, there are even lots of historians out there who argue we shouldn't call them midwives because any woman could kind of be a midwife. Um, But it does seem clear that the term obstetriches, which is, you know, translates out to midwife, is used and is distinguished from just being a plain old woman in this period. Giving birth was an all-female activity. You know, you had lots of people from the community who would come to the birthing room and be present during that time. And actually, the further we get in the Middle Ages, the more it seems like you kind of make sure you invite all the important people in town because everybody wants to be seen at the latest birth. (laughs) Um, However, there are specific women there who are actually busy, um, you know, making sure that the birth goes all right. And the church in particular talks about midwives um, and how it is critical that midwives know how to um, do baptism in case anything goes wrong. And certainly it does seem like midwives had a lot of good knowledge about how to turn the baby in utero if necessary, um, you know, how to do a breech birth if required. But if things got really bad and the child got stuck or anything along those lines, um, you know, there was always the possibility of calling in a physician or a surgeon, uh, but that was usually something that people with money needed. And if things kind of went badly and they needed a cesarean section, that usually happened. And midwives did it, but that was usually after the mother had already died. Sarah, just uh, out of curiosity, you mentioned earlier that uh some of the records are scant, uh, didn't have answers for some of the questions mm-hmm. that you even had. 
Where, where did you go, and what what material did you you research to come up with this uh, article? So I went to the National Archives uh, just outside of London in Kew, which, by the way, if anybody has a chance to go, it's beautiful there. And the archives are so lovely and friendly. It's my happy place on this earth. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at trial records, uh, but some of the best things I found, actually, were jury lists in there. Now, jury lists, these were... um, You know, when they were trying to decide who to summon as jurors to come for that trial, they'd make up a list, and it was basically written up on a scrap piece of parchment that was eventually going to be thrown away. But some of them, for one reason or another, were not thrown away. They ended up being kept. And it was really exciting when I found jury lists with actual matrons' names on them and then found trial records that also had matrons' names too. Um, There weren't a ton of them with matrons' names. I do include an appendix, though, at the end of that article, because I was so excited to see, you know, lists of midwives out there. Um, But what I found particularly interesting was when I found jury lists that had the same women's names multiple times. And to me, that was really important evidence, because there's no reason to narrow down the list of people that you're going to call unless you're looking for people with very specific qualifications. Uh, I mean, otherwise, there are tons of women. If you're just looking for mothers, you can call anybody. It doesn't need to be the same 12 women every single time. So that that was an awful lot of fun, looking at um, trial records, which are very brief, but also these jury lists. Okay. Um, Brett, you're going to get the last question for this segment. Oh, the pressure is overwhelming. So, Sarah, you talked about all of these uh, women of relatively high status uh, being considered matrons. Can you give us a sense of kind of the the social level one would have to operate at to uh, be in consideration? So I suspect that a lot of these matrons were actually sort of like, uh, you know, lower middle class, if we have to come up with some sort of designation. Uh, I mean, midwives, uh, many of them do seem to have been married or were widows. Um, So the assumption is these are not women who are doing this because they actually need to support themselves. They're instead doing this to bring in extra income into the household. Um, And certainly to be in a position like that, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be super elite, but you have to be a well-respected member of the community. And many of the descriptors of matrons suggest that they have to be honest and discreet women. But honest in particular is kind of a euphemism for someone of means in the Middle Ages, because they figured that if you were poor, you couldn't be honest. Sure. Um, well, so I sort of lied to Brett. I'm actually going to get the last question for myself. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Sarah, why do you think knowing about English legal attitudes toward pregnant women is relevant in today's world? Well, I, I think there are... Um a couple of things here in particular. I mean, one of the things that I discovered when looking over this is 
quite frankly, I think a lot of historians have deliberately misread a lot of records from the past when it comes to women, um, just because they assume that no one in the Middle Ages could have appreciated women as women, when really I think we need to be honest and recognize that that is our problem. Um, I think that women today are put in a situation of constantly trying to prove that they can be men or compete in a man's world so that we sort of forget that sometimes women have knowledge that is specific to women, and that is something that can be appreciated by society. But I also think one of the other sort of important notes from this study um, when looking at the quickening and how the quickening became important in the mid-14th century, it reminded me that um, despite what I think we often hear in the news, the Church did not always think that life began at conception. And in fact, that is a pretty recent idea that began in the late 19th century with Pope Pius IX. In the Middle Ages, they thought life at best began in the, four, the fourth month, or Many theologians also argue that it began after the child was born and took his first breath. So that's another one of those moments where I think we sometimes get a perception that the Catholic Church has thought the same thing for 2,000 years. Things aren't quite so set in stone. Good, good. Well, when we come back, we will wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA. St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 400th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. And we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of English History at Ohio State University, who talked with us about her article, More Than Mothers juries of matrons and pleas of the belly in medieval England. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pulinala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>